Welcome to the Saxon Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. There's a popular scene from the classic television sitcom Seinfeld where Jerry was utterly confident he could tell when his ex-girlfriend Elaine had an orgasm, and he appeared to take great pride in this knowledge. However, when Jerry asked Elaine for validation of his sexual know-how, he discovered he was wrong. Very, very wrong. When Jerry asked, what about the breathing, the panting, the moaning, the screaming? Elaine replied, fake, 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 fake. It's a humorous scene, to be sure, but it reflects reality for a lot of people. It turns out that many of us across genders and sexual orientations have faked an orgasm before. And many of us have probably been with partners who pretended to climax. And we may be totally in the dark about which orgasmic experiences were real and which ones were pretend. So we're going to be talking all about fake orgasms today. Specifically, we're going to look at what the research says regarding how many people have ever done it, why they do it, how reasons for faking orgasm differ between men and women, whether faking orgasms is a good thing or a bad thing, and what you need to know if you suspect a partner of faking it or if you've been faking it and you don't want to do that anymore. I am joined by Ashley Weller, a human sexuality and health psychology professor at Chapman University in Southern California. Ashley also works in mental health clinical research and has more than 15 years of experience in sex education. She also has a podcast called What's Your Position, which tackles issues surrounding sexuality, relationships, life, and love from a comedic yet educational point of view. This is going to be a really fun and informative conversation. So stick around and we'll jump in right after the break. The Modern Sex Therapy Institutes provides continuing education, certifications, and a PhD in sexology to mental health and medical professionals across the globe. MSTI is a one-stop shop for ASECT sex therapy certification requirements, including education, sexual attitude reassessment, and supervision. MSTI offers flexible payment plans and learning options. Attend from anywhere in the world and learn from experts on sex and relationships. For more information on their programs and offerings, visit modernsextherapyinstitutes.com. That's modernsextherapyinstitutes.com. Want to last longer in bed? Our friends at Permesin can help. Check out their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize it for your own body and desensitize only the areas you want. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews and is physician-recommended. Permesin offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at Promescent.com, where you'll also find an extensive selection of lubricants, supplements, condoms, and more. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. Hi, Ashley, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hello. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. It is truly a pleasure to speak with you. I'd like to begin our conversation by asking you to tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you became a sex educator. So what is it that drew you to this area? I think it had a lot to do with my upbringing and the lack of exposure that I had to sexuality and just the normal human process of living and experiencing emotion and um 
everything from menstruation to pregnancy was sort of shrouded in this like concealed box of sin (laughs) when I was growing up. And I had so many questions that I never really got answered. And so um, when I left home and went to college, which is where a lot of people experiment and learn a lot of things about life and, and themselves, I took eight human sexuality classes. I was like the kid who was never allowed to have cake. And when you don't let someone have cake and then someone offers them the mother load from Claim Jumper, they eat the whole damn thing. So (laughs) I took eight human sexuality classes. I love the topic. I love learning about the human body. I love the human mind. And then I I got into volunteering at AIDS Services Foundation. My family is entrenched in that organization. My grandmother was one of the founders of AIDS Services Foundation in Orange County. And I started volunteering by educating people about HIV and AIDS. And I found my passion really was educating people about sex in general. And doing these speaking engagements, I found myself at Chapman University as a guest speaker, much like yourself. And (laughs) I met a mutual friend of ours, Dave, and he said, hey, if you get your master's, come talk to me and we'll see if we can't get you into teaching. And so I got my master's as as fast as I could (laughs) during COVID. I was a COVID graduate and um, began teaching the very next semester. And it's honestly, all I ever want to do is educate people and help them become happier, healthier human beings. During COVID, when I couldn't teach, my cousin had a podcast and he was like, do you want to do a podcast? And I was like, I don't know. Do I want to do a podcast? And he's like, we could talk about all the things you can't teach right now since it's COVID. And so we started a sex and relationship podcast. And I don't know which one I like more, teaching or doing my podcast. So I don't know if I'll ever stop doing either. But that's me in a nutshell. (laughs) Well, I love that story. I wish I would have had eight different human sexuality courses when I was in college. The sad reality was that there wasn't even one to choose from because I went to a Catholic school. And so that, you know, sex just wasn't on the menu in the curriculum. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it sounds like we also had a similar career trajectory in the sense of, you know, COVID kind of derailed a lot of what we were able to do as sex educators. And that's really when my podcast started in earnest. And at first it was like, I just need to talk to people. And so it was a form of therapy. Get this out. <laughs> yes. But it became this thing that I love doing. And you get to have these really in-depth conversations about fascinating topics where I'm learning, my audience is learning, and we're having a good time at the same time. So I love it. Yeah, I've learned a lot. And most of my guests are my friends (laughs) and my family. Um, But we have these, like you said, these really beautiful in-depth conversations about things like raising daughters and cancel culture and abortion and periods. And, you know, sometimes it's a place of uh, vulnerability. And I really learn about people and and my friends and my family and also is hilarious at times. And I can't stop laughing and we have to go back and edit things because I'm just cracking up in the background. But it's been probably one of my most favorite things I've, I've ever done. Yeah. And, you know, at some point we'll have to have our blooper reels that come out yeah, I for know. our podcasts because <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff that happens. Oh, that man. We always talk about hitting record before we start the episode because usually we're just talking shit to each other for the first like 15 minutes. And we always talk about recording that and then releasing it as like its own podcast. And we really should. It, there's so much good stuff. <laughs> It is. That's where some of the best stuff happens. So thank you for sharing a bit about your professional journey. So let's get to the topic of the day, which is fake orgasms. So we're going to talk about when somebody is engaged in sexual activity with a partner, 
And then they give their partner the impression that they climaxed by pretending to have an orgasm. So there's a lot to explore here in terms of why people do this and what that actually looks like and how it plays out, what the effects are on, say, a relationship. But as a starting point, let's just ask the question of how many people say they've ever faked an orgasm before? What do we know about that? So research is so limited on this topic, and it has only been in the last few years that we've gained a lot more insight into why people fake orgasms, who is faking orgasms. Um, Dr. Lori Mintz is amazing, and she wrote a book called Becoming Clitorate, and she did a lot of research on this topic of faking orgasms. And she's right now who I go to for my research. She's the most relevant. She's the most recent. And she has the most in-depth, wide swath of humans uh, for this research. And it shows that about two-thirds of women are faking orgasms and about 20% of men, so a little less than a quarter of men, are faking orgasms. Interestingly enough, it actually changes based on your sexual orientation as well. So when it comes to heterosexual women, we actually see a much larger portion of them saying they fake orgasms. About 80% of heterosexual women say that they fake orgasms. Interestingly, 86% of homosexual women are having orgasms about 86% of the time, and bisexual women are having orgasms about 63% of the time as compared to heterosexual women who have orgasms about 14% of the time. That's consistent with the research that I've seen. You know, you're right that there is very little work on this, and most of the studies are pretty limited. A lot of them are college student samples, and we know there's limitations in terms of what college students can tell us, but it's usually between half and two-thirds of women and 20 to 25% of men who say they faked an orgasm in most of the studies I've seen. But I appreciate you bringing up that there's a sexual orientation difference there, and it makes sense because there's this thing called the orgasm gap, where we know that heterosexual women are orgasming less frequently than heterosexual men on average. The orgasm gap isn't really there in the world of gay and lesbian relationships when you make that comparison. So there's more of an opportunity for fake orgasms to emerge in a heterosexual context. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it comes with the partner that you're with. And if you are in a lesbian relationship, there is a tendency to have more communication about your body and about your pleasure and about your orgasm. And there's also a longer amount of time in a lot of research that is happening during that sexual encounter. So there's a lot more time to have an orgasm in a lesbian relationship. In a heterosexual relationship, we have to remember that egos are very fragile. When a man ejaculates, typically the sexual encounter is over, depending on how long his refractory period is. We may just be looking at, at an issue as far as, as how much time a, a heterosexual woman has and how much communication is she having with her partner about whose pleasure comes, pun intended, whose pleasure comes first, uh, and how we both can get to that place. If that's your ultimate goal, if orgasm is actually your end goal, making sure that you both can arrive there at, at some point. But it doesn't have to be the end goal. Yeah, totally agree. And I think that's such an important point about the timing. You know, if you look at the research on average, Heterosexual adults say they're spending around 15 minutes or so on sex, and that includes everything, right? Mm -hmm. The <laughs> 
penetration intercourse portion, if that happens, you know, is usually about five minutes or so. So, you know, you're not talking about a super long period of time. And if you look at lesbians who are engaged in sexual activity, it's more in the 30 to 45 minute range on average. So that's a pretty big difference in terms of that opportunity for orgasm to even emerge. Right. It's another orgasm gap all in of itself. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about why people fake orgasms. Is the benefit primarily for the individual or is it primarily for the partner? Why are people doing this in the first place? I've looked at a lot of different reasons why people would be doing this. There's some evolutionary psychology that says that we're faking orgasms because we, as heterosexual women, want our partners to feel like strong, virile men who are going to impregnate us and are going to procreate with us. And I don't necessarily think that I agree with that theory as much as I agree with the idea that the media has saturated us with this idea of the moaning and the breathing and the writhing and porn and even Seinfeld has this idea of what an orgasm should look like and how fast it should happen. In movies, when women get penetrated, they come like that's immediately. And unfortunately, only about 10% of heterosexual women who were asked can come from penetration alone. Most women require clitoral stimulation to even have an orgasm. And so if you're only looking at this five minutes of penetration and there is no talk about how to stimulate the clitoris, which is the main hub of pleasure on a woman, you're going to run into an issue of, okay, well, now it's been five minutes and he's about to come. So I should probably just come so that we can get this over with. So is it a evolutionary thing? I don't think so. I think it's more of a socially constructed idea of what an orgasm should look like. And when a woman can't get there, she feels the need to become this perfect idea of this sexual partner that this man wants to help him him get there. Because women take about 15 minutes to orgasm on average. And if you know the whole sex act is 15 minutes, we're going to run into a little bit of a time issue. <laughs> yeah, the, the clock's going to run out, let's clock just say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think you're right. You know, there can be multiple lenses through which to view why people fake orgasms. But there's also been research where people are specifically asked, if you've ever faked an orgasm, why did you do it? And you see that they're kind of all over the board in terms of their reasoning, which tells us that it's not just one thing that is driving everybody to do it. And for some people, it is kind of about what you're describing regarding that partner benefit where you want to please your partner to make them happy to avoid conflict in the relationship, right? Because there's so much value and emphasis that's placed on orgasm. And and sometimes partners will pressure us to have an orgasm. It's one of my least favorite questions. Did you come? (laughs) First of all, if you have to ask, (laughs) probably not. Like, this is the this is the question that we impose on people. Did you come? At some point, you're just going to say yes, because that is such a huge deal for people. Orgasm is the hallmark of a good sexual experience in our society. And so if you don't have one, are you the failure or are they the failure? 
And so you you ask yourself these questions in the moment. And I think people just don't want to be a failure. And so they say, yes, I came. And then the partner's like, really? Because I can't, I couldn't tell. You know, you didn't give off this cue. You didn't make the sounds like Meg Ryan does in, uh, what's that movie with Billy Crystal? Help me, Justin. What is that? <laughs> when Harry Met Sally. There it is. <laughs> I'll have what she's having, right? Uh, it, you want to make sure that you are living up to these standards and finishing the act and making it a good experience for everybody. There's also the idea that if you fake it till you make it, you may eventually have an orgasm. So if you work your way there and you act like you're about to have one or you get yourself into that mindset, do you work that muscle memory to help yourself get closer to having an orgasm next time? And, and I, I do understand that argument, although I have a little bit of an issue with it. And we'll get to it a little bit later when we talk about why you shouldn't fake orgasms. There are also other reasons why people might fake it that have to do purely with the self. So sometimes people will fake an orgasm because it's not a good sexual experience and they're just not into it anymore and they want it to be over. So faking an orgasm is a way to end it. This goes back to what you were saying. You mentioned the word finishing, right? We, we tend to think of orgasm as the finish, the end of sex. So by faking an orgasm, it can be an out from a sexual experience that you want to end because you're not into it anymore or maybe because you're tired and you would just rather go to sleep than you know continue having sex. Or maybe the sex is painful or you just realize an orgasm isn't going to happen and you just kind of want to you know, you need some way to end the sexual experience, right? So there can be those more self-interested motives that come in and play a role. And I've seen some research looking at gender differences and reasons for faking orgasm. And in the research that I've seen, it suggests that women are more likely to adopt the partner-centric motives, where they'll mm. fake an orgasm for the benefit of their partner, whereas men are more likely to fake an orgasm for I don't want to call it a selfish reason, but it's more for themselves. It's a personal choice. <laughs> yes. They're tired. They realize an orgasm isn't going to happen. They're not into it. You know, their fake orgasm is a little bit more about them. I think that you're absolutely right. And the numbers absolutely show that. If two thirds of women are faking orgasms, you have to assume that not all of them are faking orgasms for the same reason. And if less than a quarter of men are faking orgasms, I would then have to say that maybe less than a quarter of women are faking orgasms for their own selfish reasons. And maybe another quarter of them are faking it for their partner's benefit. And maybe another quarter are faking it because they really want to have one. And they think to themselves, maybe if I try really hard, <laughs> maybe if I make the right noise, it'll happen, right? And also making sounds that have to do with orgasms orgasms are hot and it might help your partner finish faster and get to his orgasm quicker instead of not making any noises or being engaged vocally with the act itself. Maybe in that partner-centric mode, we're thinking to ourselves, well, if I sound like I'm about to have an orgasm, it will help him have an orgasm as well. And there is some research on what we call in the scientific literature, female copulatory vocalizations, you know, the sounds that women make during sex. And we find that they do facilitate heterosexual men's orgasms. So there is something to that. Now, when people fake orgasms, how do they do it? 
So for example, if you're someone with a penis, we know that ejaculation usually occurs with orgasm and that seems kind of hard to fake or conceal. (laughs) And you know, that might be part of the reason why men are less likely to fake it because maybe it's harder to convincingly pull off. But then again, men also tend to reach orgasm more consistently than women. So there may be fewer opportunities to fake. So we know it's multifactorial. But that said, when people fake it, what are the main things they do to convey that they've had an orgasm? And are some people putting more effort into this than others? So typically for heterosexual men to fake it, if they're using condoms, it's a much easier thing to fake. Um, They can say, oh, yes, I I finished. I, I came. That was great. Do some thrusts, perhaps a little bit of butt clenching, some vocalization, and then they can remove the condom and throw it away without the partner inspecting it to see if there was any ejaculate that came out. A lot of men can also say, yes, I, I did have an orgasm. They're just, I, you know, maybe I masturbated earlier today, or maybe, you know, there just wasn't very much ejaculate that needed to be cleaned up. For women, typically when they're faking orgasms, it's a lot of vocalizations, yeses, some expletives, arching of the back. There's a lot of visual cues that they're giving their partners, pulling them closer. Yes, yes, more yes, right there, don't stop. And then the ones who do their research, and I'm raising my hand because I've done research, know that a orgasm is an involuntary contraction of the vaginal muscles. And if you know how to do a Kegel, you can actually mimic an orgasm and you can count in your head seconds apart, so five seconds and then three seconds, and have these contractions around your partner's penis, which simulates an orgasm, although you're not really having one. My husband knows the difference now, so we don't fake in this house (laughs) because he knows if it's real or not real. Uh, And I try to educate my students on how to make sure that you let your partner know when you're having an or and there's different kinds of orgasms. Some orgasms don't have those really strong vaginal contractions and some do. Um, there's also orgasms you can have from nipple play. There's orgasms you can have from other erogenous zones that don't involve any vaginal muscles. It's, it's dependent upon the kind of sex that you're having and how willing you are to learn about what an orgasm should feel like. Oh my God. People are counting contractions in fake orgasms. I mean, (laughs) that's fascinating. (laughs) I haven't heard that before, but (laughs) yes, you're, you're right. What you're saying lines up with the research and that men's fake orgasms tend to be centered a little bit more around bodily movements and, you know, the use of condoms definitely does facilitate that. And women's tends to be a bit more in the moaning and groaning and vocalization range. And To me, I kind of wonder, you know, where do people get these ideas in their heads about like what an orgasm should look like? Most of us have probably never seen exactly what we look like when we have an orgasm. I certainly don't know what my orgasm face looks like, and I don't think I want to know, but (laughs) it just kind of makes me think that we probably just revert to the porn scripts when we're in that situation of faking an orgasm. And I think that's why it pushes a lot of women to do this very intense vocalization or signaling because it's, that's really the only thing we've ever learned to be the sign of the female orgasm, whether or not that's accurate. Media is so powerful. It's not just porn. You watch any movie that involves any type of penetrative sex 
TV shows even. And it is this crazy thrashing of the hair and the pounding of the hands and the screaming. And personally, when I have a, a real orgasm, there's not a lot of pounding or, or yelling or screaming. It's very much a personal and internal head to toe pleasure. And once you have a real orgasm, and some people fake it because they've never had one, and they don't actually know what they feel like. But if you know what your orgasm feels like, you then should be able to understand that the faking it is probably very, very obviously faked and very much taken from the social constructs that we derive from pornography and from any media. I, I mean, there's jokes in SpongeBob about O face and there, you know, it's everywhere. Yeah. And I'm thinking about like signs of orgasm, you know, that we don't necessarily typically associate with it. And one of them is, you know, really the involuntary shuddering that sometimes mm -hmm. happens or that really intense hypersensitivity that might happen right afterwards where it's like, you don't want any more stimulation. Like there are things <laughs> like that, that you can pull out as signs of like, this is like an orgasm that actually just happened versus the involuntary thrashing. Like my mind immediately goes to the 1990s movie Showgirls. Uh, fun fact, oh. I used to have a job as a teen <laughs> reviewing terrible movies and writing very um, sarcastic movie reviews about them. It was a great fun job for a teenager. How did you uh, get but that I, job? <laughs> I, I don't know. But, you know, my initial interest was in journalism. So it's kind of fun to be a podcaster now and combine mm -hmm. my interest in sex with my interest mm -hmm. in journalism. But I remember that movie Showgirls and the main character having this thrashing orgasmic experience in a swimming pool. Oh <laughs> and it was God, Elizabeth Berkeley not, from Saved by the on. Bell. Yes, I know. It... <laughs> in a swimming pool. Like, no. It's so hard. Oh, my God. There was so much water splashing around. So much water. You can also imagine, too, how somebody who maybe has never had an orgasm and all they've ever seen is what is depicted in the media, it might give them this idea that their orgasms have to be very performative. So that's also making me wonder about a potential future study where you look at the experience of faking orgasms based on whether or not you've ever had one before and differences in how that's conveyed. I actually was thinking about when I was doing research for this podcast, there wasn't a lot of research on those who have not had an orgasm and still fake orgasms. And I thought to myself, well, I wonder how many of these women have ever even had one because there are so many women who are having sex. I mean, the, the average age that people begin having sex in this country is 17. And you don't know if you're having an orgasm at the age of 17 unless you've masturbated and you've been able to give yourself an orgasm. And if you have, then you will know what that feels like for you. But when you are having partnered sex, those orgasms are definitely going to change and they're going to feel different and they're going to look different. Like you said, the, the physiological things that happen during an orgasm that can't happen when you fake an orgasm also happen when you have one when you masturbate. So you can actually learn how to adapt those ideas and those behaviors and then perform them for a future partner. But I love that idea of future research and have you ever had an orgasm and do you fake orgasms? And then looking at where they get their performance technique from. <laughs> Where'd you get that from? <laughs> Their orgasmic inspiration, if you will. <laughs> Who's your orgasmic inspiration? <laughs> <laughs> I want to be Nomi Malone from Showgirls. Uh, I want to be somebody's <laughs> orgasmic inspiration. <laughs>
<laughs> oh man. So one of the big questions around faking orgasms is whether it's a good thing or a bad thing to do. And this is an area where my own personal thinking has evolved over the years. I always used to, as a sex educator, say it was something that you shouldn't do, especially in the context of a long-term relationship, because you're giving your partner the wrong impression of what you like when it comes to sex. And if they don't really ever understand you and your body, you're going to have the same issue arise again and again, and you're going to end up in this pattern where you're continually faking it because you're just not having very good sex. However, the more I've seen on research in terms of people's reasons for faking orgasm, I've taken a little more nuanced view. So I think in ongoing relationships, if you're faking it often and you're not talking to your partner about what you want, that's a bad place to be. By contrast, if it's maybe an occasional thing and you find that faking an orgasm enhances sex for you because you get pleasure out of it, or it brings your partner pleasure and you take pleasure in your partner's pleasure, you know, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. So I'm curious for your take on this, making orgasms, good thing or bad thing, or does it depend on the situation? I hear what you're saying totally. And I know exactly what you're talking about, but I don't think that we should call what you're describing faking an orgasm. I think what you're describing is enjoying sex. I think that what you're saying is that it's okay to be vocal and to want the orgasm and to get close to having an orgasm and just to really open up and feel every piece of pleasure that's happening to you and embody that pleasure and vocalize that pleasure and make sure that your partner knows that you are enjoying every act that is happening in that moment. When we talk about faking orgasms, for me personally, it feels manipulative. It feels like you're lying to get to the end game. If you're not enjoying sex, you should stop having sex, regardless of if your partner has had an orgasm or not. I don't think that you should fake an orgasm just so your partner can have one. I also don't agree with reinforcing bad habits. I am a huge proponent of, of positive reinforcement. I give candy out in my class. So when people answer questions, I throw Jolly Ranchers at them. And that makes them answer questions more, which is exactly what I want. So I don't want to reinforce any bad behaviors. My clitoris is not one inch above where you're, you need to move your tongue if you want to hit that orgasm button. Or I want to be on top because I know how to stimulate both an internal and an external orgasm at the same time. I need you to be quiet because I'm thinking right now and I'm focusing on my orgasm. And I don't want to give any sort of wrong impression or of of any sort of manipulation that I'm enjoying myself or that I have reached climax. If I'm enjoying myself, I'm going to be vocal about it. And I don't think that's faking an orgasm. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I agree with you philosophically, but <laughs> I see what you're saying is, hey, in an ideal world where we all have great sexual communication skills, yes, that's going to be our approach. But I think a lot of people turn to pretending an orgasm because it's much easier than having a sexual conversation. People find it so hard to talk about sex. And I think it's also really different if you add in the component of, is this a casual context or is this a committed relationship? And so sometimes in casual sex, where you don't have that established pattern of sexual communication, if faking orgasm is an easy out 
to extract you from a situation that you no longer want to be in for whatever reason. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. And I think a lot of people will do it in that particular context just because it is a way to end the encounter. But in the ongoing relationship, I think that's totally different. And it really depends on the established pattern of communication. And yes, ideally, if you're not getting good stimulation, if it's not working for you, you're going to tell your partner so that it doesn't become a pattern. I totally agree. You don't want to reward or reinforce bad behavior. You know, I've read so many media articles on faking orgasms and a lot of people liken it to giving your dog a treat when they tear up the sofa, right? (laughs) You know, that's... Giving your dog a treat when they pee on something is probably even worse, right? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. You don't want to reinforce bad behavior. So if that's the situation you're getting yourself into, that's a reason to rethink faking orgasms. It's funny that you bring up hookup culture, like a first time partner, only 11% of women report orgasming from a first time encounter. On the other side of that is 60% of women say they fake orgasms to end the sexual encounter. So those numbers are very telling and you are a thousand percent correct. I sometimes forget that I talk about sex all day, every day. And so (laughs) I am lucky in that I have a partner who will communicate with me and sex doesn't have to be about an orgasm. We don't have to have sex. Us human beings don't have to have sex to equal an orgasm. Sex doesn't have to be about this mythical finish line. It can just be about enjoying another person. It can be about experiencing a new sex position. It can be about trying out oral sex for the first time or going back to something you haven't done in a really long time, like mutual masturbation. And it doesn't need to end in this ideal climax, both of you coming simultaneously and light coming out of every orifice and you're both screaming and writhing and it's perfect and beautiful. I want people to know that sex can be amazing without the orgasm, but you're correct. You don't always get to have that conversation when you are are just there to hook up. Yeah, totally agree with everything you're saying, including the rainbows <laughs> coming out of every orifice when you have an orgasm, <laughs> right? Like that's, no, that's not what we visual? should be striving for. Did you see for. it yes. in your head when I said it? Did you see it? I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get the picture out of my mind now. Good, um, good. <laughs> but I think a big part of this is we do need to normalize sex without orgasm. Like it's just not always going to happen for a variety of reasons. Sometimes you're stressed, you're tired. There could be any number of factors that could play a role in why it's not going to happen. And that's okay. You can still have a lot of fun along the way. You know, I'm totally on board with you in terms of sex being about exploration, about being pleasure. And if the orgasm happens, it's a fantastic bonus. So enjoy the journey. And I think if we normalized sex is just this journey of pleasure and it can go it's a choose your own adventure book like it doesn't have to follow a certain script every single time sometimes orgasms will happen sometimes everyone will have one sometimes no one sometimes has one, people have still a, bunch. Have a great time sometimes yeah. there's like five orgasms it's great <laughs> but if we normalize this idea i think that's going to reduce that pressure to feel like you have to fake it because I think when we feel pressure to fake it and then it becomes this performative thing, then all of sex becomes this performative act that we're doing in the service of someone else. And that's just not a good place to be sexually. I agree. 
So I have one other question I wanted to ask you about fake orgasms, which is let's say you've been faking orgasms with a partner, but you don't want to do that anymore. Or let's say you suspect your partner is faking it. Like, should you bring that up to them? Like, how should people communicate about fake orgasms? From a perspective of the person who's faking the orgasm, if you know that you have been faking orgasms more often than not, right? Let's just say that two-thirds of the time you're faking an orgasm and a third of the time you aren't and you would like to stop doing this. That conversation needs to happen outside the bedroom. It needs to happen when you're both in a place, I feel, that isn't necessarily innately sexual. You know, it needs to be a conversation that takes place, especially with a long-term partner, someplace you feel safe and secure, not maybe not in a restaurant, but perhaps a la when Harry met Sally, um, but perhaps at your house, maybe, you know, over dinner, just I was reading this amazing book called Tell Me What You Want by Dr. Justin Lay Miller, and they were talking about fantasies and bringing up this conversation in a safe and comfortable setting with your partner, making sure that you don't make it about their performance, but more about the fact that orgasms are 90% mental and sometimes I'm just not in it. I feel like I've been watching this fantasy and I'd like to explore that and maybe that'll help me achieve orgasm more frequently. Or I think I need more clitoral stimulation and maybe we can focus on that. I bought a toy. Let's try this toy out. Really offering solutions instead of placing blame on the other person, making sure you do your research about maybe why you're struggling to achieve orgasm and knowing your own body is a huge factor when it comes to discussing this uh, with your long-term partner. If you are a partner who suspects that your partner is faking an orgasm, please do not in the middle of that orgasm ask them if they're faking it. And again, at the end of the sexual encounter, I implore you not to use the phrase, did you come? Because that's what it makes it all about at that moment. You can ask them, how was that? Did you like it when I? Was that pleasurable for you? What can I do next time to make that more pleasurable? Asking questions surrounding the activities that you engaged in. Did I find your clitoris? Can you show me where it is? A lot of people don't know where it is. And then also you can have that conversation if you feel you need to go a bit further and they're still not being upfront with you during that moment. Go outside that sexual moment and maybe, hey, you know, I was reading Becoming Clitorate by Dr. Lori Mintz. And they, she said there's an orgasm gap. And I want to make sure you are experiencing pleasure during our sexual encounters. Can you show me how you give yourself an orgasm? Watch them give themselves an orgasm. Do you know how hot that is? first of all. And second of all, you're going to learn so much about that person's orgasm by watching and not doing the whole time. Yeah. I love everything that you just shared. <laughs> and, you know, in having conversations about this, it is not going at them and saying, I've never had an orgasm with you and you're bad at sex. I don't even know if you want to go there and say that you've been faking orgasms, right? Because that can really shake somebody's confidence in themselves. And it can also feel like a betrayal because maybe they were really invested in your pleasure and then you faked it. And, you know, that can lead to bigger trust issues in the relationship. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know that you even want to bring that up. Rather, turn it into that conversation that you mentioned about, here's what I really like and enjoy during sex. And we, can we try doing a little bit more of this? And if you suspect your partner is faking, it's not accusing them. It's asking, what do they want and what can you do differently? So 
you have to tread very lightly, I think, in having these particular conversations. I also want to mention for anyone whose partner is on hormonal birth control, an antidepressant, any sort of mental health medication, and even some health medications, their libido, their arousal, and their orgasms can all be stifled by all of those things. So it may not have anything to do with either of you. It could very well be that orgasms just aren't going to happen while that medication is present in their body, or it might just take a lot longer to get there. So making sure that you know your partner's health, mental health, physical health, uh, and understanding that the medications that they're taking could also be a factor. And if the other person doesn't orgasm, it's not about you. It doesn't mean <laughs> that you're a bad sexual partner. Like, don't take this so personally. And if you don't have an orgasm, don't feel like a failure. Right. We need to move past the fact that people think sex equals orgasms. It shouldn't. Sex should just be about having fun. And if you have an orgasm, yay. And if you don't, <laughs> we'll try again next time. <laughs> like, I agree. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Ashley. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Absolutely. It was an absolute pleasure being here. Uh, I have a podcast. It's called What's Your Position? We're on Instagram at What's Your Position Podcast. You can also email us at What's Your Position Podcast at Gmail. And we have a phone number. It's 513-6969-SEX. Not even kidding. They can call us. They can leave us messages. They can text us, ask any questions that they'd like. We will answer them live on the air. And we are available at every single podcast outlet that you can get your hands on. Spotify, Apple, Pandora, Podbean, all the good ones. We're there. Love it. So if you want Ashley to weigh in on whether you have a good pickup line, call and leave her. <laughs> oh, my down. God. I'll do an entire <laughs> episode on pickup lines if I get more people to call. <laughs> I would love it. So thank you for your time. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 